It takes more than refactoring your insecure YAML configuration into JSON to be a great engineer. This is episode 172 of the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Smith. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. Soft Skills Engineering is a weekly advice show for software developers about non-technical topics. So this doesn't happen as much with JSON, but with YAML, for some reason, you get like layers and layers and layers of YAML templating out YAML <laughs> with yeah. more YAML. Mm-hmm. You can get hit really hard on the head with a YAML stick. <laughs> But at least you get significant white space in your yep. config language. <laughs> Hooray. I want to thank our wonderful patrons. Thank you so much to Matthew Voidovich, the Agile Ventures Charity, Ted Nugent, Crash Bandicoot, Zach Grannon, this engineer goes up to 11, Luis Santos, Nick Cantar, Taras Karuk, Sean, Sunny Ty, Sonic the Hedgehog, Ivo Robotnik, Murray Rousseau, Chris Hogan, Chase Norton, and Stanley Tactical Radio. Thank you so much to those people who are donating at the level where we shout them out every episode. Thank you to everyone else who is supporting the show and your support will help pay for the costs of running the show and also get you access to our fantastic Slack full of friendly mm-hmm. people. It's Slacktastic. And if you want to join, if you want to support us, you can go to softskills.audio and click support us on Patreon. That's right. Well, uh, yeah, question time. Yeah, should I read the first one? Please do. Okay, this comes from an anonymous listener who says, Hi, I'm a full stack developer. I feel undervalued at my current job and I'm looking at other opportunities. Many recruiters approach me on LinkedIn with contract to hire positions. Usually this means the benefits are not as good as direct hire positions and that the company can just dispose of me when the contract is done after 6 or 12 months generally. Salaries seem to be higher when contracting though. Have you ever worked as a contractor for a large company? Would you recommend it? How likely is it that companies use this type of employment as a way to temporarily hire somebody for a specific project and then get rid of them once it's done? What signs should I look for to avoid such companies? Does contracting actually make a difference? I live in Oregon where employment is at will anyway, so I can get fired at any time without any warning. On that nice note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what a good thought for all of us to ponder that live in at will states. I mean, that's that's true, but there's also cultural and legal things that people wanting to fire folks worry about, too. So yeah. even if you work at an at-will place, there's usually something protecting you from an evil boss waking up on the wrong side of the bed and just saying, yeah. like, <laughs> who shall I fire today? <laughs> I'm in a bad mood, and the only thing that is going to fix it is firing a random victim. <laughs> Whoever looks me in the eyes first <laughs> today. So... If you feel undervalued at your current job, working as a disposable (laughs) contractor (laughs) is not a great way to immediately feel more valued, necessarily. (laughs) What if I turn myself into more of a fungible commodity? (laughs) Wow, man, you put it so clearly. I was like, man, oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. But it could lead to being more valued in the end. Yes, short-term undervalued, long-term maybe adequately valued. Yeah. So I have experience with this. I work at a large company that hires lots of contractors, and some of them do make it to full time. There are a lot of complications there, though. So generally, the contractors come through a contracting company, and there's sometimes an agreement with the contracting company that you can't hire the contractors directly. Oh. Or you have to pay a, like a, a recruiting bounty or something like that. So it's more oh. expensive to hire them. 
Oh, wow. And there's also, they ask about a specific project and then get rid of them. That is how it happens a lot of the time where you have a certain budget of this project. It needs to spin up quickly and we don't have time to like hire a team for it. So we'll get like five contractors for this project for a fixed amount of time. And that usually has an end date. And then there, there's some ability to reevaluate it and say, hey, we really like these contractors or this project is going really well. So we'll extend the contract. But it's it's like an explicit decision to extend it and you can just do nothing and let it lapse. Yeah. How likely is it that companies use this type of employment? I mean, yeah, that's part of the benefit of it is they, they, they are exposed to less risk. It's easier to just end a contract than it is to fire an employee or lay off people. Yes. And often as well, if, if the company is experiencing financial difficulties, that's an easy knob to turn to just say, we're going to stop paying our contractors. Right. I mean, hopefully you tell them not to work anymore as well. <laughs> uh, you don't just not pay them and keep, let them keep coming in to do your work. What if, this is the CFO, right? What if we can get them to do the job without paying them to do the job? Our bottom line, would be so good. Yeah. What if they work for goodwill equity <laughs> where we give them options to our hearts <laughs> or something? Options with a very good strike price to buy the fact that we like them. Yeah. They still have to buy it. Yeah, I have, I have so much practical stuff to say that I don't have anything funny to say, I feel like. So interrupt me with funny stuff, I guess, Dave. But okay. the other thing going on here is if you come through a contracting company, if you're not just directly employed as a contractor by the company, then there's always some price difference going on between what the contracting company is paying you and what the company wanting the contractor is paying the contracting company. Mm -hmm. And that can be to your advantage because it can be possible that you could join the company full-time for more money if you add in benefits and all the full-time stuff, but the company would be paying less money for you. There's like some arbitrage there that you can take advantage of, where if you're working directly for the company, you don't have that. So say you 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 bill $10 an hour, but the company bills out your labor at $20 an hour or whatever. Mm -hmm. You can join full-time for the equivalent of 15 bucks an hour and get a raise and the company pays less money. And if they like you, that's a good deal. Oh, so you're saying if you get one of these contracting companies to be kind of your intermediate man, yeah. Then when you go full time, you might actually, what, have an increase in pay? Is that, is that the possibility? Yeah, or at least not as steep a decrease. The question mentions higher salaries, which they don't mean <laughs> salaries. They don't mean, yeah, they don't mean the word salary. <laughs> higher monies. <laughs> and that's to account for the fact that you're not getting any benefits and your vacations vacation now time. cost twice as much money because <laughs> it's not that's only right. whatever you spend, it's the amount of money you are not earning by billing during those times. Yes. So so generally the base salary is less, but the total comp will be higher because you avoid all those extra costs and get more benefits and stuff. But if you're going directly as a contractor, you could probably just charge more money straight up. And I, I think it'd be hard to get in at big companies though. They like that kind of like barrier filter effect of having a contracting company that you go through yeah you can imagine it doesn't scale very well to have like a thousand individual agreements with individual yeah yeah if, yeah if you need if you need 500 contractors then you're not going to like go find your 500 top then it turns into a recruiting problem and why wouldn't you just right. hire someone full-time right huh so that's a bunch of info i've dumped is it good to do the problem here is feeling undervalued, but what about in like a mixed contractor full-time environment? What do you think will be the effect on being undervalued there? 
Oh, I mean, in the United States, the law requires you be undervalued. <laughs> like they have to treat you differently or you are not a contractor. You're a full-time employee and they have to pay you benefits. So they mm. have incentives to not have you participate fully with the team and not have you come to company activities and have as much of a barrier of like handing tasks across the line and getting the result back as possible. So that it's okay. very clear that you're not an employee with employee-like benefits. But that doesn't always happen in real life <laughs> because it turns out that's often, if, if you're embedding on a team, that's one more piece of advice, I, I guess. Positions where you're embedded on a team are going to be much easier to convert to full-time and much more comfortable than positions where you're working separately on a contract project that you just hand over to someone else when you're done. Okay. And I think the practical experience is often a little bit different than this like really hard and fast kind of shun shun the contractors so we don't get in legal trouble advice. Well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean it's different in practice? Like it's hard to work with someone like that. So I think in practice, lots of contractors end up integrating more closely with the team and, and just kind of in some ways looking sort of like normal employees. Yeah. But if like the right person found out, then they would stop it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So I guess that's one sign to look for is look for uh, embedding instead of separate projects. What signs to look for? You could ask them how often it happens too. Because some people explicitly use it as a as a way to vet folks. Didn't you have yeah. some experience with that, Dave? Yeah, I did that. So a good 10 plus years ago, we were feeling dismayed with our interview process. It was quite rigorous. It was like an all day ordeal for every candidate. And we thought, you know, we're spending a lot of our time. We're spending a lot of the candidate's time. Wouldn't it be better just to do a lower investment interview process of just a couple of hours and then bring people on on like a 90-day temp to perm arrangement so that yeah. they can just start working? And if after 90 days they're great, then they just come on full time. But if they're not, then they don't. And I think we did go through a contracting company to do that where we basically outsourced the sourcing of candidates. And we did this for about four or five candidates, and none of them worked out, so we abandoned it and just went back to our normal full-time direct hire. For those candidates, do you feel like you would have hired some of them full-time? Or do you feel like you wouldn't have hired no. any of them full-time, but you were willing to take a chance because of this contracting thing? I mean, I'm not totally sure I understand the question, but... So so at the end of the couple hours of interview, say you were deciding, are we going to hire them full-time or not? Would you be a no on all these people? But you just said, but we'll try it out for this 90 days because if it doesn't work out, we'll have more information and it could turn into a yes. And if it doesn't work out, it's fine. I don't think I would have said no because after just a couple of hours, I didn't have enough data points to actually make a solid conclusion. But it was enough to say not no, if that makes sense. Like there were no yep. red flags, right? And it was yeah. just enough to say, yeah, let's give it a try. Hmm. But that wasn't like we need to ramp up on a project really quick. That was... We want to tweak our hiring process. Exactly. It was just trying to be more efficient with our hiring. It's not really a commentary on the approach overall. I don't really know how it works in general or if our experience is really predictive of the rest of the industry. But for us, it was basically an abysmal failure. Yeah. Maybe because we did it wrong. Such a rare experience for you, Dave. Abysmal failure? Yeah. I know. It only happens like once a day. Yeah. <laughs> How likely is it? Yeah, I don't I don't know raw numbers, but you could ask the company. I mean, presumably if they find contractors they really like and want to bring on full time, then they're they're happy to do it. Yeah, I would ask. If I was looking at a, a position like this, I would definitely ask the company. Yeah. You know. But I will say that one thing, and James, and you have a ton of experience with this, having run your own contracting company for a, about a year or two. But like you have got to figure out how much your life is going to cost as a contractor because oh, yeah. the price tag goes way up on things that you probably don't even know your employer is spending on your behalf right now. 
insurance, payroll tax that mm-hmm. they don't pay for you anymore. Self-employment tax is higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no PTO, mm-hmm. no bonuses, no 401k, no equity. But you live in Oregon, so at least they still pump your gas for you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that, that's worth a lot an hour. <laughs> yeah, there, there are things out there. There's there's some freelance rate calculators that help you figure out, kind of eyeball what your what your hourly rate should be to target a certain take-home number. But it's, it's like much higher than I think most people expect, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if you take a number and multiply it by 2,000 hours, that's roughly 40-hour weeks, 50 weeks a year. So basically two weeks of vacation a year, then you'll be like, that's a lot of money. And then you like divide that in half, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But should you do it? I mean, I would say not to do it at a company you would not want a full-time job for, just that there's a mm. job out there. Yeah. If you're looking for stability and this is deliberately an effort to get a job, then try and target it just like you would a job search and, and say, here are the companies I would like to contract for. I yeah. do not have any experience on the recruiting side of, of working through a recruiter to get placed as a contractor. Working as a as a contractor or a consultant, basically what happens is companies that like you always try to hire you and it's this delicate dance of, I don't like you enough to join you full time, but I'll keep <laughs> taking your money, please. <laughs> um, but that's that's as a more independent consultant than someone who's who's got one client that's a big company, basically. I got to say, and I'm curious if you've had a similar observation, but maybe 10 years ago or so, I would say two thirds or more of my recruiter inbox messaging was for contract positions. Whereas today, it's got to be, I don't know, under 20%. Like, it just seems like the numbers have come way down. 10 years ago, I was in college. So (laughs) either infinity or 0% of my recruiter spam. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it does it does feel like it's gone down a little bit. Maybe maybe it's like an experience thing where people with longer tenures and more experience don't get approached by that as much. Yeah, maybe recruiters are like, that doesn't work. Go for the young, fresh out of college kids. They, they don't know what they're doing. I can trick them into a contracting gig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've used up all my wisdom juice on this question. I don't all know. right, squeeze it all. Yep. Good luck. Good luck with that. Okay, I will read the next question. This is from a listener named Carlos. Hello, I'm a mechanical engineer from Brazil. I really love your podcast. As a mechanical engineer, I don't develop software, but I believe the soft skills are important to everyone. I work in an American multinational company, and I often talk or send emails to the engineers there. However, our culture is different, so I don't know how to behave or how straightforward, informal, or political I must be. I'm always afraid of offending someone. What kind of things should I never say or do when dealing with Americans? (laughs) We Brazilians become friendly and intimate very fast. Do you guys notice these kinds of different behavior from different cultures? Oh, awesome question. Oi, tudo bem. I lived for two years in Brazil. I spoke fluent Portuguese at one point. I could, again, with some effort, I guess. And Brazil is rad. I loved it there. And that matches my impression broadly of the culture, that people are very friendly, get to know each other very quickly and rapidly, and it's easy to make fast friends and then just like stick with somebody for a while and hang out if you want. Okay, so this is going to be a hard question for us to answer because what you're saying is like, tell me about the things that Americans never do to each other, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh, what do I never do? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, what are the things that are just obvious to you that you just right. assume are how everyone will behave? Exactly. The water you swim in. Describe it. I think that 
Brazilian culture feels a little bit more informal. I so I I didn't work professionally when I lived in Brazil, so this is through a, a different lens of experience. But it felt like maybe the the American business style of email is a little bit more direct and straightforward, and there's more effort on like communicating clearly and politely instead of casually, hmm. and and maybe less conversational. So like, don't use the word dude. Don't use the word email. dude. Yeah, mono. okay. Yeah, bro. Don't, don't type rs 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 a lot. Okay, and what's that's, that? That's like LOL in Portuguese. Okay, and don't type LOL either? Yeah, don't type LOL. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, say per my last email instead of listen up, you moron. <laughs> that's a general thing. It's not that Brazilians would say listen up, you moron more, but per my last email is the magical phrase. That means, or you didn't read my email. Yeah, listen, wake up. I think an important thing to know about Americans' mental model of Brazil is soccer. That's like the one thing they know about your whole country. <laughs> um, so if you can like say like, remember me, I'm the soccer guy or something. I don't know, something they'll be like, oh, Brazilian, yeah. <laughs> so I think you're saying that Americans are just culturally clueless about other cultures. There's room for one fact at most about each country. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Okay. Maybe a couple if you have like hundreds of years of shared history between your two countries. Okay. <laughs> like France and the US, a long relationship. It's like cheese and great. And like maybe if you reach, it's like, oh yeah, Statue of Liberty. They gave us the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> That's what I know about French culture. They gave us a statue. Good, good folk, those French. <laughs> Except it turned green. Oh, it's beautiful though. I love it. <laughs> true. That's true. You don't like the original brown? <laughs> well, when I saw it, I didn't. I wasn't a fan back in whenever it was 1800s. Right? <laughs> yeah, not a fan of that original model. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Huh. What about what is offensive to Americans? I don't know if I want to just list off all the things that would offend a large portion of our audience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's one for you. Saying that America might not be the number one country in anything <laughs> is like super offensive to some Americans. I mean, that's the thing. It's like a subset. Like uh, America is large and varied and saying it is the number one country in lots of things could offend a different subset of Americans. <laughs> true. That's true. So don't say anything, I guess. Just stick to like, here's this design. What about that cracking football match? <laughs> Okay, don't talk about how much you hate bald eagles. Ah, yes. That is a safe thing to stay away from. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about how Americans are kind of ignorant about other cultures. So, you know, you're from Brazil, and if an American thinks you speak Spanish, just go with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Okay, I know one. In Brazil, the inventor of aviation is this guy named Santos Dumont, and the Wright brothers are not it. They are frauds. Oh. So if you want to start a giant fight between a Brazilian and an American, bring up the Wright brothers and tell them that they were not first to flight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. There were some battles <laughs> when I lived there about it. <laughs> it's a very stupid thing that I decided to fight Did about. You, so you, you got on the Wright brothers' side? Oh, of course. Because... They're American. Because you're a red-blooded American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I read up on the Wikipedia article, and there's, like, some nuance and complexity that I ignored and was like, maybe I tried to edit it to say, like, <laughs> clearly it was the Wright brothers or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. That's a good topic to ignore. Yeah. 
To some extent, this crosses cultures, though, and it applies to more than just a Brazilian talking to an American company. Like, how? What, what if? What if you're American and you work for a Japanese company or, right. or European company or something? Like, how would you just go about understanding the cultural norms around communication, especially business communication? I feel like it would be easier to like make a faux pas that would mess up yeah. stuff. Yeah, if you're just sure. hanging out at a party and and you like someone says you speak Spanish and, and then you like say no you you dummy i speak portuguese <laughs> then <laughs> no, you kind of like laugh it off but if it's like an email with your boss yeah it's a little different. it's weirder then it's yeah. hola <laughs> yeah well hey turns out that's portuguese as well no is it okay darn it see that just goes to show how little i know <laughs> well i mean i think a really good idea is to seek out someone who has your same cultural background who has spent time immersed in the other culture ah. that you can then ask like what were the things that surprised you and i'll and i'll give you an example from friends oh that's i'm going to interrupt you first so it's like the expert thing where experts aren't good teachers like we are experts in american culture that's right <laughs> but we've we've internalized it so we can't look at it and examine yes. it and say here's the here's the weird part it's like people that are kind of have an outsider view yeah like i am really really good at american culture yeah it just comes effortlessly. Expert mode. Yeah. Don't even have to think <laughs> to like watch football. And... Yeah. Like, like for example, I used a drinking fountain the other day, totally from muscle memory. <laughs> <laughs> I drove on the right side of the road and was not even briefly terrified that I was going to run into <laughs> oncoming traffic. <laughs> Although I think it's the same. Yeah. I think uh, they drive on the right. Yeah. In all of South America. Okay, so here, you know, I'll just tell just a quick story that just totally surprised me. But a a good friend of ours is from France. And when she came to the United States, she learned the hard way that Americans have a space bubble that's bigger than French people have. So, you know, if you're standing in the grocery store in the United States, you usually want to put a couple, two or three feet, you know, and these are imperial feet between (laughs) not not one meter you know you want to put a couple two or three feet between you and the next person in front of you and any closer than that and they're going to be like looking over their shoulder wondering what are you doing and this this lady this friend of mine she stood in line a lot at grocery stores and just right up against the back of the person you know maybe a few six inches away and repeatedly people were like what are you doing (laughs) which i was like oh wow i had no idea i wonder how many times that happened where someone was like giving off passive aggressive hints yeah that that she just didn't pick up until someone finally was like why are you standing so close to me (laughs) like (laughs) probably a bunch of times oh yeah i mean if she were living in our home state she may have lived an entire lifetime without ever ever anyone actually directly saying you're standing too close yeah passive aggressive is the only form of feedback (laughs) that's right (laughs) but i think she was in uh, new england so Ah, pretty quickly people yeah so yeah pretty pretty quickly people said hey you're standing too close yeah she's like i'm sorry Anyway, so yeah, it's those kinds of things that would never occur to me to even say, don't stand too close, you know, because I don't know. Like, I don't know. I didn't know other people stood that close. And for what it's worth, I would happily welcome you to stand closer to me if you want to. It's fine. Yeah. Your bubble has been shrunk because you have kids. That's true. (laughs) I don't have a bubble anyway. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I actually have a natural bubble. To get to me, you'll have to fight your way through a perimeter of children. The children are clutched to your legs at the grocery store, That's right. so the stranger has to stand one child's body width away from That's you. That's right. <laughs> it's like bubble wrap. So there's probably a hundred little things like that that someone who has lived in the culture, having grown up in yours, will see and be able to tell you, oh, right off the bat, they'll probably be able to list five things. I think a useful thing to do would be ask a trusted colleague um, and say, hey, I want to make sure I'm communicating effectively. Could you look at, 
I don't know, these emails or these interactions and tell me if, if there's anything that seems like it would be offensive or ineffective. Right, or even just culturally off a little bit. Yeah. You know, try, to, try to cast a really wide net so that their eyes are open to even subtle nuanced things. Because I think culture manifests in subtle things, usually. I think it's also different how common the experience is at the company of interacting with people from different cultures. Where if, if yeah. everyone at the company is in America, most of the folks American and you're kind of the outlier, then people might not have as good cultural like context switching in their yeah. head where they can say, oh, this is how this person communicates or whatever. But if it's much more common, the proportions are much more even, then then it's possible that it's it's very common to uh, to be chatting between Americans and Brazilians and people are, maybe they have some mental model of what your culture is like too. You could explain that more as well. You could say, hey, I like to be more casual in my, in my email communication or whatever it is. This mm. is... Again, me extrapolating from my my uh, unique experience there. Yeah. The other thing I'll say is that if this is a multinational company, which Carlos says it is, it it could be that there's actually a overriding company culture that ah. really should dominate the the communication structure and stuff. Like cyberpunk, <laughs> where there are these like global megacorp multinational companies that are their own countries basically that's right and they cross cut geographical cultures and you know i work for a company like that that has established a very strong corporate culture that governs the behavior it governs the reward systems it governs the feedback we give to each other and the way we build software and treat customers and everything and so that culture tends to override any local behavioral culture and what i found is that even though i've interacted with people from dozens of other cultures i find that we have this common language and it really helps to be able to transcend any kind of you know cultural differences so i also work for a large global megacorp and it doesn't feel quite the same with this shared strong culture so i think that might depend company to company however there are a lot of people from different countries that i work with and i think it's kind of like there isn't a shared culture, but there's this shared understanding of like everyone's kind of negotiating. People are used to communicating across cultures a little bit. So everybody cuts everybody else a little bit of slack, I think. Like in your case, everyone just communicates in Bentonville, Arkansas. Culture, right? <laughs> I wish. I don't know what that's like. We were going to go to Bentonville and then we didn't. We had to cancel our trip. We ended up going to California. And I've already been there. So it was fun, but it would have been cool to stop by the homeland of the company. I'm not sure I've ever actually been to Arkansas. I have never never in my life or as my daughter as my daughter said yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean we live in utah and there's a bunch of names that are like that there's hurricane instead of it's spelled hurricane and tool but you pronounce it tuila Mm -hmm. just weird manaway i don't know spelled mantua what spelled mantua pronounced manaway i've never even heard of that place did you just make that up (laughs) no it's on the way to logan oh okay there's a little Utah culture for you. Yeah, now I know. I mean, Utah culture is like what I can see from my office because that's most of where I spend my <laughs> life for me. <laughs> Utah culture is this little bee flying around outside my window right now. <laughs> well, hmm, have we answered the question? I think so. We were a little bit indirect about it, though, because like, I think the, the short answer is we can't reliably answer this question for any culture because we don't have that context to do it so we have a blind spot we have a giant blind spot despite the fact that this is maybe the most i know about another culture besides (laughs) american because i because i live there and it's still like i have no idea man (laughs) but (laughs) but i can tell you how to investigate it and i think that's what you should do all right well 
Boa sorte. Oh, what does that mean? That means good luck. Oh, I actually knew that. I could tell. Yeah, from yeah, you speak Spanish. Yeah, and what I found is that when an American speaks Spanish and another American speaks Portuguese, their accents are so bad that <laughs> it sounds like the same language. <laughs> yeah, I had a good accent at one point, and now I do not. Yeah. Now I barely have a grasp on grammar and vocabulary. Well, good luck, Carlos. I hope this helps, and please let us know how it goes. If you want your own question answered, what should you do? I, why am I asking you, Dave? Well, because I know the answer. I guess, yeah. Dave, what would you do if you had a question you wanted answered? This is the one question on the show that we know how to answer reliably. (laughs) Okay, hit me. And the answer is go to softskills.audio and click ask a question where you can fill out a form to ask us anything you like. Also, thanks to those who have written in to give us follow-up anecdotes about what happened when they took our advice, the disasters that ensued. We'd love to hear more of those. Send them on over as well. And what can people do to support the show? They can go to softskills.audio and click support us on Patreon to support us financially. You can also support the show just by listening to it and sharing it with more people. Twitter is a good way to do that. We're on all the major podcast things, Spotify, Stitcher, the iTunes directory that most apps use, all that stuff. So lots of ways to sign up. Tell your friends if you like it and don't if you don't. (laughs) So they remain ignorant. (laughs) All right. Catch you next week. 